Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Today's Tuesday, the 21st of March. I'm Mark Matthews, Head of Research Asia at Bank Julius Baer, and welcome to our weekly Beyond Markets update. Last week, the S&P 500 and NASDAQ stock market indices rose 1.4% and 4.4% respectively. Year-to-date, they've returned 3.3% and 11.8% respectively. So just remember, when you read about how it's the end of the world, it can't be the end of the world when the NASDAQ is up 12% this year and we're only in the month of March. That doesn't mean we couldn't get a recession. The oil price is telling us something in that regard. It was over $90 a barrel late last year. It's under $70 now. And among the Federal Reserve banks, the Philadelphia Federal Reserve is the first to report its Purchasing Managers Index every month. It's the oldest PMI in the country, and the geography it covers is important. Heavily industrialized parts of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware So it's closely watched, and the March number came out last Thursday at minus 23.2. The consensus among economists was for minus 14.5. At minus 23.2, this index has always been coincident with recessions in the past. Then how does it make sense the Nasdaq is up so much this year? Well, the Federal Reserve is meeting today. This Philadelphia report is a great excuse to go on hold. And the Fed must be happy to see the oil at this price. It must also like the University of Michigan's Inflation Expectations Index that came out on Saturday. And that fell from 4.1% in February to 3.8% in March, meaning respondents on average expect inflation to be 3.8% in March next year. Now, granted, 3.8% is still above the Federal Reserve's official inflation target of 2%. But we think that target is going to be subtly and quietly abandoned. It's simply no longer appropriate for the unsettled world we live in. And 3.8% is an acceptable level in today's world. I'm sure if you walked about Raffles Place here in Singapore and asked people, has the Federal Reserve raised interest rates enough? 100% would say yes. So if the Federal Reserve does decide to pause its rate hikes at today's meeting, nobody's going to complain. And the futures market is now pricing a terminal Fed funds rate of just 4.9%, down from 5.4 a month ago, while 4.9 is almost where we are at four and three quarters today. It basically means the peak is very close. The issue is, if the Fed goes on hold now, it might look like it's panicking because of what's happening in the banking sector, and that might hurt its reputation, make things even worse. So Our economist, David Cole, thinks the Fed's going to still raise by 25 basis points, but he also expects them to acknowledge that past rate hikes have tightened financial conditions sufficiently to slow economic activity, ultimately lower inflation, and it will announce that it's going on hold. And David says not raising interest rates further from now on reduces the risk of a recession. I should be clear, at Julius Baer, we don't expect a recession in the United States this year. We're still looking for about 2% GDP growth in 2023. I mentioned the Fed might not want to look like it's panicking over the banking sector. So let's talk about that. There's two issues, the small and medium-sized banks in the United States and the issue of Credit Suisse. They're two very different things. With support from the Swiss government and regulator, UBS is acquiring Credit Suisse. Our banking sector analyst, Peter Casanova, thinks the price of 3 billion francs to be paid in new UBS shares is low, 
especially when we consider that in return, UBS gets more than 55 billion francs of capital and the government provides a 9 billion franc loss guarantee. And Peter says the government needs this transaction to succeed. There's also significant cost savings in merging the two banks. We think of about 20%. But the big uncertainty lies in client behavior because a number of clients of Credit Suisse probably already bank with UBS or they don't want to be clients of UBS and they would be looking for a second banking relationship. Still, the reason we can say with some certainty that Credit Suisse is not a systemic problem is that European bank shares as a group are actually up this year. They've returned 3.2%. And over the last six months, they've returned 27%. But American bank shares are different. They've lost 15% so far this year, and over the last six months, it's a loss of 5%. Because unlike Credit Suisse, Silicon Valley Bank was a bolt from the blue. Most banks don't blow up because of risky things they do, but the things they think that aren't risky, and they end up doing those things in enormous quantities. Silicon Valley Bank was booming because it was getting huge deposit inflows from venture capital startups in 2020 and 2021, and it was good at managing that risk. What it did with that money is it prudently invested in U.S. government and agency bonds because they've got almost zero default risk. So much so that those bonds were 55% of their assets. But those bonds do have another kind of risk. Duration risk. In other words, interest rate risk. And the normal thing that banks do is to hedge out that interest rate risk. It's easy to do with derivatives. The transaction costs are minute in the United States. So the mystery of Silicon Valley Bank is why they kept buying long-dated bonds in 2020 and 2021, even when the yields on those bonds were just 1.5%, and why didn't they hedge them, leaving the bank susceptible to this massive duration risk when rates went up. Unfortunately, they were able to convince policymakers they weren't a systemic risk because they're specialists in one industry and one geography, technology in Silicon Valley, which is very important to the U.S. economy. And they were very good at doing that, providing that industry and geography with funding. But if the Federal Reserve had been looking at them more carefully, it would have pointed out that they should hedge out their treasury exposure. Anyway, everything about Silicon Valley Bank says it's an outlier. Yes, it's true there's this signature bank, too, that's in New York. It also experienced a bank run. But actually, what took it down was a decision to get into crypto, a market the bigger banks all rejected. About a quarter of its deposits were from digital asset clients. And at the same time, the problem that Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and small banks in general experienced when the Fed started raising rates last year is that customers began withdrawing money in search of higher yields. And there's still a problem today because there are a lot of banks where what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Signature could potentially happen to them. Because say you were running a business chances are you probably have more than $25,000 in a bank account at a single bank. Even though the government said it will make good on all the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, including those above $250,000, do you really want to take the chance of having more than $250,000 in a bank account at a single bank? For a lot of people, if they're watching what's been happening in the stock market, for example, the share price of San Francisco-based First Republic Bank was down another 47% overnight after having already fallen 80% from the beginning of the year. The answer might be no. 
So if people continue taking their money out of these small and medium-sized banks, that could create some stress in the economy. For example, in commercial real estate, where a surprising 80% of financing comes from, these small to medium-sized banks. That's what's making everybody nervous. The Federal Reserve guaranteed all deposits at Silicon Valley and Signature Banks last Sunday. It didn't stop the nervousness. J.P. Morgan and five other banks put $30 billion into First Republic Bank on Thursday. That didn't work either. So now the federal government, and apparently some of the small and medium-sized banks as well, are talking with Warren Buffett. And he's the person who will probably make a lot of money out of all of this. Because he has the brand name to get real sweetheart deals like he did with Goldman Sachs in 2008 and Bank of America in 2011. And with his brand name, small and medium-sized banks can then go to their customers and counterparts and say, look, Warren Buffett invested in us. We have his seal of approval. As Buffett himself likes to say, bad news is the investor's best friend because it means you can get things at a good price. Then eventually, people will run out of nervousness and realize that both inflation and rates have almost certainly peaked. If we look below the hood, the only items in the consumer inflation basket that were higher in February than where they were in June are shelter, transportation, and food away from home. Of course, the big ones are shelter and transportation. Well, real-time property sales data from the real estate agent Redfin shows a 1.8% year-on-year decline in the average home price as of March 12th. That's the largest decline since 2012. The actual peak in home prices was in June last year, and given the lagged way they appear in the inflation data, a lag of about nine months, we know that the shelter part of inflation will begin declining in the months ahead. As for transportation, well, the oil price at $67 a barrel is certainly helpful in that regard because oil's a key determinant in the price of many goods in the CPI basket, from transportation to food and lower oil prices have historically statistically correlated with lower inflation. There are a couple of pockets in the market that are able to see through all of the banking sector noise to these brighter stories. The first is gold. Gold's on a tear. It's at its highest level since May last year, and if it can break through 2000 definitively, that would be a very good sign because Gold wouldn't be going up if we were really going to go into a big economic crisis and we got deflation. Gold doesn't like deflation. The second pocket of the market that can see through the noise is technology stocks, which, as I said at the beginning of the year, NASDAQ's up 11.8% so far this year. The little purgatory in the technology sector that it's been living through since the beginning of last year has obliged it to clean up its shop. Take Meta, for example. Meta let go of 25% of their workforce in just a few months, and last Tuesday, they announced they're planning on laying off another 10,000 employees this year, or 13% of the remaining workforce. Analysts say the headcount reduction won't impact their growth trajectory negatively at all. And I'm not surprised, because much as it's not nice to wish anybody gets let go from their work, these companies were growing so fast and making money hand over fist, that they were grossly bloated on the cost side. The announced cuts are going to bring annual revenue per employee at Meta to a record high of $1.85 million. And look at Microsoft's share price that rose 12% last week after it released Copilot, 
a platform that uses ChatGPT technology to create first drafts of Word documents, PowerPoint presentations, Excel spreadsheets, and Outlook emails. In other words, it does my job. But the interesting thing is, last year, something like this wouldn't have gotten any airtime in the stock market. It was all about inflation and the Federal Reserve. Now, the market is starting to warm to interesting stories like this again. And so, if we can get a stabilization in the banks this week on top of that, the overall market can do well. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now. I wish you a great week ahead, and we'll speak with you again next week. Goodbye. Get ready for the day ahead. Moving Markets is a daily market news briefing from Julius Baer's leading experts. You'll hear all about the latest ups and downs across asset classes, the underlying drivers, and our thoughts on where markets are heading. Search for Moving Markets on your favorite podcast player. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.